Hey Chinyamaji family, thank you for tuning in to yet another episode of Chinyamaji Podcast, the one-stop shop for all startup news and stories in Africa. In this episode, we host Kageni Wilson, founder and CEO of FinPlus Group, a white-label fintech platform in Nairobi for fintechs in Africa. This is a technology company that builds all the tech staff involved in running a fintech. Listen to the podcast as we take you on a journey from Kageni's childhood, his entrepreneurial journey, his decision to focus on tech, and the lessons learned along the way. Enjoy the podcast. Hi guys, doing Chinemaji family. This is your host Mark Araki. Super excited to bring you yet another episode of the podcast. And this time around, I have somebody who I admire and somebody who's uh, a trailblazer in our market, Mr. Kageni Wilson, founder and CEO of FinPlus Group, which is a white label fintech platform for, for fintechs in Africa. And he will break down what, what they actually do and what that means. But I'm really excited about Wilson uh, Kageni, who's basically a pioneer in the sense of uh, bringing, launching a, a growth stage fintech startup out of Nairobi as a local founder. There are not too many of you. There's probably maybe a couple others out there. And so very excited to introduce you to the Chinyamaji family who are going to learn a lot from you. So Mr. Kageni, how are you doing? And welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm doing pretty well. Can't complain. Weather has been a bit less brutal in Nairobi the past few days, so I'm happy about that. Um, yeah, very happy to be here. Excited to, yeah, to to have this conversation with you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, so tell us, what do you guys do? What is what does FinPlus do? So FinPlus is a white label uh, platform for fintech in Africa, as you said. We are a technology company and we basically build all the tech stuff involved in running a fintech. So the word fintech is uh, a combination of two things. There's finance, that's the fin part, and then there's technology, which is uh, the, the tech part. So you need right. financial technology to run a fintech. So uh, we uh, asked ourselves why financial institutions need to build out technology teams and try to build digital products. Well, that's not their domain expertise. Their domain expertise is actually in finance, uh, the financial services piece. So we said we are domain experts mm -hmm. in technology. We should build a platform that you know enables them to run like fintechs and literally have that platform managed by technology experts, which they are not. So the genesis of that is something I'll talk about as, as, as we discuss the journey and how we came to start FinPlus. But yeah, essentially, FinPlus has one goal. We try to push the world towards universal access to financial services. And we decided mm -hmm. using technology, which is our biggest strength, is the fastest way we can impact that problem. And mm -hmm. that's, that's essentially what led us to say we're building this type of software and we're not going to start our own financial institution or our own fintech. We are going to build the tools and white label it and build the roads and now let all these vehicles go on to solve the problem in all the different niches where the problem needs solving. That makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So give them the shovels and the axes for those who want to actually go do the mining. Right? Give them yes. the tools, essentially. And yeah, the that's maps. actually super smart. And also the map. Okay, okay. That's <laughs> important so the, the, the critical, and the interesting part about saying you're building roads or laying, you know, railways, um, a really important part of that that a lot of people forget with that analogy is you need a very detailed map. Otherwise, the people who are using that infrastructure will always end up getting lost in the middle. And that map is very important because when you buy our software, you're not just buying the technology, you're also buying our decades of experience, decades when you combine all of us, of experience in terms mm. of what works, what doesn't work, what's your type of target customer, what channel should you use, how should you simplify the offering and all that type of stuff. So it's, mm. it's, it's the roads, it's the infrastructure that you need, and then it's the map to get there, which many times mm. is the difference between getting to your destination or ending up lost on the best paved road right. in the world. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's a great analogy to, yeah. to kind of round off your value proposition. So before we jump yeah. into kind of your background here, just to give people a little bit more concrete idea of, you know, 
what the map and, 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 and the tools are here. Who, who, who are some of your customers, right? Uh, are they big corporates? Are they startups? Uh, who, 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 are, who are your customers? So, um, like I said, uh, when we, so uh, the, the funding story of Inplus is interesting and it leads directly to answering that question because we didn't know when we started the company who exactly would be the ideal customer. But mm -hmm. we suspected it would be someone who provides financial services. Now, how we ended up where we are. So today, most of our customers are actually microfinance lenders that are fast growing. So fast growing microfinance lenders are our biggest constituency of customers. That's mm -hmm. uh, just by sheer number. But then... Uh, that may change soon because of additional products that we are building that are now making their way into the bigger banks, which uh, you know will end up becoming bigger by say transaction volume or, or, or something of that nature very soon. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, so in twenty, we started FinPlus in twenty seventeen. In twenty sixteen, incidentally, mm -hmm. that's when the World Bank published this crazy statistic that about three billion adults globally were financially underserved which seems very crazy if you know a bit about finance and technology because you'll know there are mm. over 100,000 financial institutions in the world. You have like 25,000 banking licenses somewhere out there in the world. You have 60,000 quasi-banks, microfinance banks of that type. You have about 36,000 mm -hmm. credit unions, SACOs. Mm. You have financial service mm. associations. You have all sorts of other bodies trying to you know provide certain services that solve a particular problem so you ask yourself how mm. do we end up here that you have 100 plus thousand financial institutions and three three billion, and three billion. <laughs> of the world's adult population is financially underserved right. what so are clearly we clearly a broken in yeah it's broken yeah so what that tells me i don't know i don't know what someone would reach what conclusion someone would reach when they listen to that set of facts but the conclusion we reached, myself and Banta, was like, so it, it's not a lack of financial institutions. It's not a lack of financial service options. It comes down to a lack of uh, either crafting those solutions in a way that it's relevant to these underserved people and or could be both, uh, could be either or both, or the product exists somewhere, but for some reason it's not possible for that product to be provided to you in a cost-effective way. Because it's one thing mm -hmm. to say I have a solution for you, but if it costs me so much to get that solution to your doorstep, and if I price in that cost, it's already too expensive for you, you never get the, mm -hmm. the product or the service. So mm -hmm. we dug a bit into that and we found out, actually, um, we were spot on with that assumption because Financially, if you give a million dollars just gratis to a microfinance lender today in Kenya, one of the most financially forward markets in the world, yeah, and you tell them, listen, I want you to lend this to uh, small enterprises run by women in rural areas. That sounds like a really noble thing to do. But if you fast forward two years later and they come to you and tell you, okay, cool, we did it, this was the performance, and you you know, you really drilled in and you ask how much of that money actually got to the end customer, right? To, right. How much of that was actually in the loan portfolio before you get to defaults and all that? You'd be shocked that only about maybe 50 to 60% of that money, more often 50%, is what actually makes it to the purpose. There's about 40 to 50% mm. that gets lost in overheads here. And we right. said, right. technology can definitely solve that problem. We know how technology can solve that problem. So we should build something that proves that out, find a customer who gets it, experiment with them, you know, an early adopter, experiment with them, then use that success case to tell the story of how you can use technology in an interesting way. Now, since we knew technology could be the differentiator, we had a choice. We asked ourselves, shall we build our own fintech and show them how it's done? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you were mm -hmm. like, nah, that's, that, we're kidding ourselves. A fintech has two pieces. <laughs> finance is not our strength. We could go out and find right. another founder who is like finance oriented and all that, but we're like, no, I think the bigger opportunity lies in building the roads and the map. Because one, there's, it's a massive problem. There's a bunch of different companies that are uh, approaching it. 
that way using strategy one they build the organization they go out they serve the customer they solve the problem but i thought i couldn't get this hundred thousand you know financial institution number out of my head i was like what about all those guys are we saying we're trying to replace all those guys who have decades centuries of financial services experience those guys know what they are doing in finance what if they had a partner who knew what they are doing on the technology side and our value proposition is hey we will turn you into something that's as efficient as the fintech that's in the market eating your lunch and you just focus on what you're good at we'll focus on what we're good at you just rent the entire technology platform we'll have all these modules you pick and choose what makes sense we'll configure it we'll evolve it for you pay us on an annual basis for the thing when it no longer makes sense switch it off move on to the next thing you don't have you know an expensive asset on your balance sheet that you need to dispose it was just the whole SaaS model of selling the fintech and we said let's try that because i think in the long term that strategy yields better results and a, and a much bigger impact in the sense that mm. maybe we end up serving a thousand financial institutions with our platform in the long term maybe five percent of those 50 of them become very massive financial institutions off the back of scaling using that technology and on the back of it we will then have created 50 times the impact we would have created with our own single financial you know uh, financial technology company and that's how we ended up there and it turned out um, uh, microfinance lenders were the ones who had the biggest burning problems that big platforms could not solve and small platforms were too unreliable to solve. And we could build somewhere right in the middle that could actually hit their needs spot on. And although we didn't design it that way in the beginning, it turned out to be the best thing that could happen also from an impact perspective. Because mm-hmm. you're in Nairobi, you know how it is. Um, you go to Play Store, used to be 40-something, now there's over 100 digital lending apps on the Google Play Store. You just download <laughs> that, you borrow 50, 500, 1,000, 2,000 shillings. Uh, for those listening outside of the East African market, that's like anywhere between uh, 5 USD to the best of them maybe give you 70 USD to start, you know, depending mm-hmm. on what your situation might be. And then from there, it's either you pay, you default, and if you keep paying, you that limit grows. Now, right. that has become so convenient to the point where it created an indebtedness epidemic that you know the government mm-hmm. started cracking down on and is trying to solve right now. So if you need a tiny emergency personal loan, you're covered. We don't need to wade into those waters and solve that problem. Now, let's go to the mm-hmm. other side. Assuming you're a company with a tender or a contract or a sizable mid-sized to large blue chip business, you need financing for whatever. We have 38 banks in the country that are lining up to offer you exactly the same thing. They all want to do your discounting, supply chain financing, ODs, uh, advances, and, and, and all this, the usual crop of things. But what do you need? You need that relationship. You need a business with fairly predictable, well understood cash flows three years audited financials and, you know, the works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, those are two extremes I've described, but right. 90% of the economy is in none of those extremes. 90% of the real economy sits in between. If you run an SME, right. you're not going to do much with five 7,000 shillings. You probably need like $1,000 to really make an impact on your business and get you to the next level. Neither of those can serve you. Where do you go? It turns out you go to this type of MFI lenders who don't just give you a loan off of an app. The first interaction is actually very detailed. They collect a lot of data on you. They even visit your place of business and all that. And off the back of that, they're able to, they understand you much better. They're able to extend larger credit facilities. And then based off the back of that, you can grow much quicker. How long would it take you using Tala or Branch to grow your credit limit to say 150,000. In some countries, it's not even possible yet, you know? Not possible, yeah. With our customers, yes, the first visit will be rigorous, but then after that, you're able to grow fairly quickly and you might be able to qualify for 50,000 on the first try. And then after that, you keep growing, you might end up getting a million shillings on demand when you need it in like six, 12 months, if you're on the right trajectory. So. 
we realized this is actually the best customer from an impact perspective because every SME represents multiple people that it's serving that are overlooked by the traditional banks and cannot really be served by the small credit. So that's how we started. Started with one customer in Nairobi called Premier Credit, and then that has blossomed. Now we are in five countries, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, South Africa, Eswatini, formerly Swaziland. Our platform has processed over 60 billion shillings worth of transaction value. So that's about 550 million US dollars. Majority of that have been loan disbursements. A bunch of them have been savings and deposits of different types of loan repayments. We've saved over ha uh, half a million man hours for these financial institutions. And that comes right back to what I was saying. Saving man hours through automation impacts that equation I was talking about earlier. When you give a million dollars to an MFI to lend, why is it that 40 to 50% of that money is spent on overheads? It's because there's humans doing things that software can do a lot better. We're not taking humans out of the equation. Our technology is a co-pilot. So we just make the human three, four times more efficient than they would be. So you need way less humans in your back office. You're spending way less than the 40% you are. A customer joins our platform, on day zero, they are maybe out of every 10 hires. Let's say you're hiring 10 people every quarter. Out of every 10 hires you're making, you might find about six are field staff who actually are customer-facing staff who impact the business directly. Yeah? So those, you can consider them profit centers. They actually, what they do moves the bottom line for you. Then you might find four to five of the people you're hiring are back office staff. Those tend to be cost centers because they're not directly impacting how much revenue you make in your bottom line. But 18 months into using our platform, you find that ratio shifts dramatically. And you find out of 10 hires, eight are profit centers and only two are cost centers. Mm -hmm. And that's how you start mm -hmm. shifting uh, the, the big problem that we are trying to solve. It's that mm. out of that million dollars, instead of spending 400,000 on overheads and only lending 600,000, you are now only spending 200 or 250,000 on overheads. Suddenly, now there's an extra 200,000 that you can lend to a couple extra businesses. Or the few that qualified can access way more capital as a result, which leads to many different you know, uh, outcomes at the level. So that, that, that 60 billion shillings represents... Uh, you know, emergencies that have been handled, businesses that have been started and funded and grown, it represents all sorts of livelihoods for many different people. So we are very proud of, of, of what that number represents. Mm. And that's basically that's how amazing. we got to serving the customers we serve. That's amazing. No wonder you're the CEO. You tell the story exceptionally well. <laughs> so, um, I don't yeah, get it. It's part of the job, part of the job. You've been doing it for a long time, so it, it just comes naturally. But clearly you are, you understand your, your game very well. And that's, that's always a sign of, you know, the proof is in the pudding, fundamentally. The numbers speak for themselves. So question for you in terms of your background, you know, like high school, you know, uh, it looks like you are up, up a hill. That's where you went to high school. And I would love to kind of get a sense of, you know, why you always an entrepreneur from the jump or you one of those, you know, folks who are hustling, you know, textbooks or how, how, what's your what's your entrepreneurial journey? How did you end up to becoming the kind of person who starts a, starts a company in, in our market? Most people do side hustle things and so on and so forth, right? That's not the natural, that's not kind of like the proven path, right? People go for the conservative path. You know, how did you end up here and maybe starting from high school? Well, I'll actually go one step back uh, before high school because it all links together so it just so happened that uh, my mom was a teacher and she was actually a very well sought after teacher like very highly sought after so her classes tended to perform quite well in the national exams and so a bunch of prestigious schools noticed and started trying to get her and my mom was pretty smart so she said I have a younger brother five years younger than me it's just the two of us said Listen, part of my standard contract rider will be that my kids get to study in the school I teach, pro bono. Mm -hmm. Like, just to get me, they study there. Like, there's a right wow. with a scholarship attached. Super smart. Just like a, like a, like a, like a, you know, 
that's amazing. I mean, yeah. that's like an athlete, you know, like a Premier know. League player or NBA basketballer. <laughs> yes, it was actually pretty, pretty solid. So what happened is uh, I, I came at the time when I was very young, I'd say my parents were lower middle class. Uh, over the years, mm. they climbed up into middle to upper middle class as, 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 mm. as we speak today. But at the time, they were lower middle class. But as a result of that single decision that my parents sort of managed to negotiate, uh, I managed to go to schools that were way outside our affordability range. So right. uh, we ended up going to like uh, Kilimani Junior at some point and then spent a few years in St. Patrick's Hill, which was the cream of the crop back at the time. Uh, funny story, we were in that school with BN from Soti Sold and we met in, in, in Upper Hill much later down the line. Cool. But um, yeah. following, uh, when I was in St. Patrick's, uh, my mom decided to quit and start her own business. She said, I'm a teacher, I have this brand and I want to do this in a different way that I think it should be done. I can't really do that as long as I'm employed in someone else's right. structure. So she left and started to start her own schools from like mm. preschool, kindergarten and primary. The goal was always maybe to build it out into a high school. And so mm. that was an interesting decision for me because like she had, you know, this like track ahead of her. Mm-hmm. She could have been maybe mm-hmm. principal of the school or whatever because she was like very well respected mm-hmm. head of academics, I think, when she quit, which was a pretty mm-hmm. uh, significant role. And so when I saw that, it was interesting because what it instilled somewhere in the back of my mind was that, oh, it's okay to take risks like that if you really believe mm-hmm. in something. It's like, oh, so she left right. this very clear runway for something that is totally unknown, but it's what she right. thought was the best thing. So, so that was an important piece. But then um, how I ended up in Upper Hill is a, is, is, is a second part of that story. So when she quit, obviously, now we would have to pay full fees in this school, which is right. not an option. Now, to tell you the kind of school it was, at the time this happened, uh, I was on a field trip in Mauritius. <laughs> so, oh, wow. field trip. so we were there for like a month uh, on a field trip mm-hmm. with the scouts who were attending a world jamboree, mm-hmm. etc. When I came back, I was like, yeah, so listen, at the end of the academic year, you no longer be at this school. But there's this competition. The private school association has done this uh, competition. We we entered you, etc. And they were checking like for students with the best grades, best curriculars, etc. And the top three or top five were getting scholarships or something. So what happened is mm-hmm. I made the cut and they told me, luckily, there's a scholarship for you to attend a school closer to home, somewhere in Buruburu. And then... Uh, we don't have to pay fees there. You only need to attend, I was in grade six, so only two years, and then you can go to high school. So Mm. that is how I left that school and got in. I was like, okay, cool. Uh, Two years, and then I can basically pick my destiny. Came high school selection. I picked, uh, I think I picked Starehe Boys as number one, Alliance as number two Mm. in Mm. my Provincial, those were national schools. Provincial, I picked um, Upper Hill, I think, and a bunch of others I don't really remember. So what happened mm-hmm. is that I learned in the course of those two years, because I was a pretty strong student, uh, the management said, listen, we have a sister school in Nanyuki called Liki, right? Like at the, at the bottom of Mount Kenya. Your scholarship can continue there if you choose to go to that high school. All the four years of high mm-hmm. school, I was like, oh. Last mm. year of primary school, they took us on a trip there for like a week, just after the mock exams to like relax us as candidates right. before we come in right. for the final push. And it was so cold. It was so freaking cold. I was like, okay, this was a very good experience because now I know I do not want to spend four years here. So I kid you <laughs> not, I gave up yeah, four yeah. years, a four-year scholarship on account of the weather. It was like, I'll be comfortable <laughs> here. No thanks. I'll be sick every other day. It's like, no thanks. So had to have that chat right. with my parents. So they said, no, but your grades are good enough. You'll get into a good school. We'll figure it out. That's fine. So mm. I, I, I passed the exam. And then it turned out that by then, my parents' fortunes, you know, were trending up. 
And what happened is, as you know, uh, Starehe is partly a social enterprise. So they try to right. give a certain quota of, you know, uh, students mm-hmm. from disadvantaged backgrounds. And right. what happened was, they told me, listen, you have the grades, not a problem. The issue is, there are students with identical grades to you as well from way media families. So right. given our mandate, we want to prioritize them. So just like that, mm. I was knocked out of going to Star here. I was like, oh, damn, didn't see that coming. Mm. Second choice was Alliance. Alliance said, listen, you definitely have the grades. Oh, oh, they, they just don't invite you, but we followed up and they said, you have the grades, you would have made it no problem. But we are very highly sought after. We don't want anyone who, for whom we were a second choice, you know? They were number two. Oh. They said, no. <laughs> no. Wait a minute. How do they know people? that? Exactly. It's like, listen, huh? we have people with identical grades who chose us as a first choice. That says something. I, I mean, that's up to them. That's their pedigree. And so that way I just kept falling. And then I went to my first choice provincial school was this school called Upper Hill. I was like, yeah, I chose it, but I don't really know much about it. And then went to right. visit it. It was right in Upper Hill before Upper Hill was mm-hmm. like the financial map center. It was just like, right. I think the only size paper there was Rahim Tula and Geomap. So I was like, oh, this is actually pretty close to the city. It looks interesting. I mean, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. single decision turned out to be super important. Like the way I fell mm-hmm. through the cracks to land at Upper Hill mm-hmm. was perfect because that's where I actually mm-hmm. figured out who I wanted to be. Had I gone to a different school, mm-hmm. I might be in a very different life right now. So Upper Hill, I attended mm-hmm. exactly when it was at its prime, artistically. Mm-hmm curricular wise you know so mm, when i mm. came they were the national drama champions they were the national music champions they had like art metal work woodwork they were i think in the top 10 schools from rugby and basketball like it was really uh strong in the, the ascendancy wow okay and the mm. academics it was maybe you know um it was not really at the top but it was it was way above average still, but extracurriculars is where it really shone. And I joined drama club in my second week uh, because I noticed. Nice. So it was the first time they were rehearsing. I was like, these guys don't get to go to evening preps. What's that? No, they're rehearsing for the festivals. Oh, really? That's interesting. Okay. I'm a good writer. That's how I get out of it. Story is interesting. <laughs> I'm going to stay behind and listen. And just like that, I was booked from the second week and literally. I was in drama all through the four years. Uh, I, I co-wrote nice. some of the plays that got to the nationals in year three and four. And uh, awesome. it was an interesting yeah. journey of self-discovery where I realized this is the first time I'm away from my parents for real, you know, and I could do whatever I want here. And that's when I really started exploring myself. So I was a very nerdy kid. I was mm-hmm. not entrepreneurial in the traditional sense. I was way mm-hmm. more academic academic like, i was mm-hmm. academic in a different way i was not academic in the class sort of form of academia that you would mm-hmm. think i actually mm-hmm. stopped following our high school curriculum in the first term of my second year like in the first time of mm-hmm. from that point me and the curriculum just diverged because i felt like i had understood the basics and i understood mm-hmm. the concepts that interested me everything else was mm-hmm. just stamping a time card and I hated it. So I just started reading <laughs> off on my own tangents. I must have read like 20-25% wow. of our high school library by the end. So, no kidding, my nickname in high school was Prof <laughs> uh, because I was this okay. nasty kid. <laughs> you know, something the drama club nicknamed me, this professor because I was this very mm-hmm. nerdy, very mm-hmm. dense. I was always off thinking about all sorts of very dense intellectual things mm. conversations with me must mm. have been very weird at the time but drama <laughs> helped balance me out it made right. sure i had social skills. you couldn't go to an event and not talk to girls they would make fun of your career <laughs> so you had to sharpen social skills you had to you know right. a well-rounded individual you had to develop that confidence right. to you know do right. things right and so mm. it actually upper hill turned me into a very well-rounded individual because it gave me the time right. to figure myself out and I figured out I could mm. write, I could be creative, I could create worlds that other people find interesting and this thing is valuable. So mm-hmm. when I left high school in the end, I was pretty sure I was gonna be a writer for the rest of my life. Like this is my life. I'm really? gonna be a creative. Wow. 
I'm going to be a creative. I didn't participate in anything entrepreneurial in high school per se. Like I understood the basic concepts of it because my parents were running some businesses, right. but never like in a personal capacity. It just seemed like too much mm. work and too much responsibility. I liked the idea of being an artist, <laughs> not operating under the conventional like boundaries or framework. Right. And I would just be up all night and sleep all day, do my work, do what I, you know, right. just go, go wherever the path. Artist life. Yeah, the artistic yeah. life. It really appealed to me. I was like, mm. that's going to be it. And after high school, I was pretty sure that's what I wanted to do. And this was underlined by my mom had this rule. Me and my brother both went through it. After high school, you'd have to work in her school doing something so that you would know what it was like to work before you like join uni and go on with the rest of your mm, life mm-hmm. and i started mm. off just teaching computers because i was always interested in computers ever since primary school through mm. high school that really built up and i developed a very keen interest so they bought mm-hmm. some computers and i would spend so much time on them but it was more mm-hmm. for artistic reasons i was always like creating mm-hmm. interesting animations etc and then using now them to write my stuff and all that it was never really mm. beyond that for me. It was more just the mm. possibility of using them as creation machines. So I would teach mm. the little kids computers, etc. And over time, I just got more and more responsibilities. And that's where I really learned the conventional working life was not for me. I hated, mm. by six months in, I just hated waking up in the morning. Not because what I was doing <laughs> wasn't nice. Not because it wasn't fulfilling. But mm. I was just, you know, empty inside just because mm. i knew this is not my thing i couldn't say how mm. i knew but i knew it's not mm. my thing and it was just really and, bothering and, and is this and is this what what was not your thing was it just the working nine to five what was yes working nine to five and also what i was doing so teaching uh the kids how to use computers was actually a full part of the job because like you would mm-hmm. show kids this new world and I found that aspect pretty cool. But the rest, that's like 20% of the job. 80% right. is reports and exams and grades and lesson plans and, you know, uh, updating parents and dealing with discipline issues and, you know, getting to work at this time and living at that time. It was just the structure of it mm. was Mm. Part. The structure was the worst part, <laughs> you know. Mm. So mm. that also told me, wait a minute, this should I, I should learn from this experience and decide what I want to do next. And as it turned mm. out, so it, it came time. So I did my driver's license, etc. I, I always went for the more ambitious thing. So tiny as I am, people don't realize how short I am until they meet me <laughs> in real life. Mm-hmm. But little as I am, I was like doing my BCE driver's license with this old, massive bed for trucks in industrial area. And it was one of the <laughs> hardest things I ever had to do, if you can picture that image. But I always went like for that extra step. That, that was like who I, I was even back then. And so at the time, I was like, I'm just going to be a writer. I'm going to start doing guest posts and like trying to find writing gigs and, and do whatever I want. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, mm-hmm. my parents were expecting I was just going to visit different unis to decide which one. Because I didn't want mm-hmm. to just default to I've been selected in this uni to study this because my grades were good for this. I wanted to actually figure out what it is I want to do. And so this is like 2008-ish. So I, I left high school in 2006. So I just pretended that I was strongly considering different unis, but I was just interested in like the writing thing and figuring my life out. And in the end, they caught on. They're not idiots. They were like, yo, what's happening here? <laughs> like, we're not hearing back about all these things. What, what are you spending your time on? It's like, listen, okay, I have a radical decision here. Uh, obviously, I don't want to go to uni right now. And wow. The whole thing blew up. So it was like, blew oh, up. What is In whose mean? household are you going to do that? Yeah, exactly. But... The cool thing is my parents had taught us, you know, had raised us to be independent thinkers, you know, and and to be like Mm. independent minded. So 
I just brought it's it quite out. rare in our society, actually. Very rare, actually. And so this is also why I felt brave enough to bring that up because I knew they are mm-hmm. way more likely to get it, you know, if I, if I made my mm-hmm. case correctly. And so mm-hmm. I articulated it in interesting ways that could relate to them. And uh, in the end, it worked because, I, like, I framed it in in a way that. So I gave all the real points, and then my last closer was that, listen, guys, it's your money, okay? But uh, if we start going down the wrong path, and I have to drop out, or then you know I quit in the middle, and then or change to another course, that's just money you'll have wasted, isn't it? Much better if you give me some time mm. to figure it out. Give me a year, maybe two. I figure it okay. out. You negotiated. I love once it. <laughs> I know, once I know what it is I I want to do and I'm passionate about, then you'll be paying for something you know I'll use. You know, and that was, that was just the cherry on top that like closed it. They were like, okay, I guess that makes sense. You know, and they were like, yeah, we don't want to force our kids into situations. So yeah, let's see. Uh, a year or two will pass very quickly. We will revisit. We'll see mm. where it was by then. And of course, by then, I was just trying to figure things out. And one of my friends from high school uh, was here, decided he was going into media full time, uh, came across this uh, gentleman who was looking to like, he'd written like a script or a treatment for a new TV show, he was looking to start a startup uh, sort of media production company. His name was Ibrahim. He had like this really cool vision you don't often get uh, in the average person. And I found that pretty interesting. But my friend felt, uh, yeah, he was coming on the project to like film the thing and bring it to life. But he felt the script was not up to scratch. I was like, Will is a really good writer. Let me bring him in. He can polish this up and then see if this is something he wants to join, uh, you know, also in the long term. And so that's what happened. I, I, I polished up the script and then I just got drawing. I was like, ah, cool. So you don't just have to write for the page. I could actually write for the screen. That's a new challenge. Never mm. done that before. Mm. And so I got sucked into that world. And that's when I realized I was not a compartmental kind of person. Because that, like, mm. you slowly learn things about yourself as you go through the journey. And mm-hmm. I realized very quickly, I could, like I, I was not happy just writing the thing and then handing it off to other people to take care of the next stages. Because what mm-hmm. I was seeing down the line wasn't really exactly... It wasn't what, what you had imagined yeah, in your mind. Yeah, it wasn't what I had imagined. So it was like some control mm-hmm. freak tendencies starting to emerge, but in subtler ways, it was like, <laughs> um, yeah, maybe I want to get involved in that stage. I can help you guys maybe do this a bit better. And then, but by the end, a year later, I was more or less basically creative director. I was just like overseeing the concept from the, the whole thing from concept all the way to like a pilot that is like short mm-hmm. and packaged, etc. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. when I learned, okay, cool. So I can actually hold in my mind all these separate parts from start to finish. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the results I find are better if I actually care about each step of the process and not just like my thing mm-hmm. and then I'm out. So uh, mm-hmm. that was an important step. Uh, one of the things we did uh, was a game show that we then uh, you know, pitched to Mnet uh, as, a, as, a, as a new concept. And uh, from that experience, I learned actually liked pitching and selling things because by the end I was the most qualified to sell this thing because I knew the most about it end to end so um, mm-hmm. for, from that experience I realized okay I actually quite enjoyed the selling piece of, of, of that process which I never knew about myself I never realized mm-hmm. that I would enjoy businessy type stuff so that was the first thing I was like okay mm-hmm. cool so that actually never went to air for a different set of reasons but the lesson I took uh, from that really helped me going forward because how I got into tech is just b- after we shot a really expensive pilot, I got mugged mm. and I lost a hat mm. that had a terabyte of footage. And oh, not, God. not all of it had been backed up. And so oh, man. <laughs> I, I later learned and I realized, hold on, like even if they get back the hard drive, which will not happen, and the data is corrupted in any way, that's such a massive loss. Why isn't there like right. an easy way for people to just back up all their data? So I was asking this question in 2010. 
okay? This was oh, wow, cool. okay, great time, because that's when, uh, that's when the whole cloud thing was really popping. Um, there you go. Everybody, Dropbox, I think Dropbox was founded, maybe Dropbox was a little earlier. A few that. years earlier, but it was still mainly a North American thing. There was no Dropbox yet, right. no one knew about it. There was no right. Box, there was no right. Google Drive, there was no OneDrive, all these things didn't exist yet at the time. Right. Right. But yeah. I was just asking myself, how? why is that not a thing in this day and age? And so when we went on production right. break, me and my friend called Alan, also from high school, was working as a production manager in that same startup. Uh, he was a self-taught engineer. We just started exploring and turning around this problem and saying, we could probably build something to do this. Because what was there at the time was like, you know, like Access Kenya, corporate uh, disaster recovery type solutions. If you compare right. what that is, to what like Google Drive is to their what box is, you can see the massive you know thing from what we were seeing to what was yeah. in the market. And so right. that actually led us to like start tinkering with technology. Mm -hmm. you know, like, okay, what exists out there? What can we build uh, that would be valuable even just for us? But of course, mm -hmm. we were both overachievers. So we really now, after mm -hmm. after we got the root of the idea, we started just trying to make it mm -hmm. more and more, you know, awesome from our perspective because mm -hmm. we were building for ourselves. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. just before that, IBM had released this technology called IBM System Z. It was like uh, a, a way to deploy virtual machines on the same server. So you could take a Linus box mm -hmm. and create multiple virtual computers inside it. I was like, mm. that's perfect. That's exactly what we would use. Imagine you have one mm. giant supercomputer sitting in the cloud and everyone has a desktop. And the question mm. we asked ourselves was, um, wait a minute. Everything on your computer is just software. Why is it locked to your laptop? That would be like mm. um, if you could only access email from your laptop. You know, mm, it, it mm, seems mm. so counter, you know, uh, logical mm. to say that we lock all the software. It's like, why can't all this software be available online, like through a browser? Of course, we were way in over our heads and way ahead of our time with that question. Mm. But it was the right mm. question, just maybe a bit too mm. early. But then we started looking into mm. it and said, IBM System Z could be the back end. What could be the front end? And then JavaScript was now capable by that point of doing very interesting things. WebRTC, uh, you know, had imagined it was now starting to gain some popularity and realized you could put these things together. There was a project called iOS, I-E-Y-E-O-S, that, that was like a virtual computer through the browser. And we were like, mm. we can take that open source code and heavily modify it to build our thing. And so that's how we started. Mm. And we were just crashing on our friend's couch and just building. We used to buy Airtel. Which I think it was called Zane at the time. I don't know if it had changed to Airtel and Luminate. And then we would just, you know, just brainstorm ideas and build the whole night and sleep wow. all morning, etc. And then. So let me ask you this. So, how yes. did you. You're, you're clearly talking highly technical stuff. I mean, because I haven't heard you talk about, you know, spending time doing this stuff. Obviously, you were teaching kids, but that was the creative stuff with com computers. When did you spend yeah. time? developing these capabilities and these skills to be able to do this stuff? I was developing them as I was doing it. So literally, in real time, as I'm telling you this story, I'm learning, right. I'm learning the things I will need next month, this month. There was no, like, educational <laughs> quiz. <laughs> it was literally step by step. The things we will use next month, we are learning this month. That's how it was for both of us. So we were literally just researching, and this is why we needed so much, you know, and then limit because we were doing so much research and going down rabbit holes, studying, discussing, brainstorming, trying, failing, figuring it out, etc. So it was literally happening. And so on 11th November 2011, 11, 11, 11, I still remember that. <laughs> we were like, let's put this thing online that we created and just invite a couple of friends and show off because we think it's so cool. Um, and so we invited a bunch of Facebook friends. We did it. From, we did it from a friend's cyber cafe. Um, we didn't even have a laptop of our own. We just, uh, you know, just bare minimum. So that was like the start of the rocket ship, so to speak. We didn't build this thing mm. to create a business or anything. So we weren't prepared for any of that. Mm. We were just in our over our heads with the technical details of it. But if you can believe it. 
three months later, we had like 17,000 users because it was free. My writing, you know, I did this like this really nice, uh, you know, mm. not nice. It's terrible by today's standards, but it was compelling by mm. those days. A, a mm. Copy on mm. the landing page, etc. Make me change now, but at the time it really worked. I said, is this, uh, we're giving uh, a million free cloud PCs. We just wanted to see who would join. Mm. Up to a terabyte mm. of storage, etc. We were like, who's going to mm. use that? You know, it, it was just like, mm. you know, technically it could mm. be possible, but... We didn't mm. think anyone would want it. But to right. our shock, three months later, 17,000 users in all five continents. I think at our peak, it was like 70 countries cumulative had actually accessed this Whoa. system at some point. Because we had created like a virtual computer that looked and worked really well. Like it really looked mm. like it could be a computer someday, you know? And so we had all these different applications. It, it wasn't just you logging in and finding files like Dropbox. You were actually mm. having applications like word processors, uh, presentations, okay. spreadsheets, mm-hmm. you chat with other people, etc. So we took this open source software and heavily modified it. We created these really cool backgrounds. We were saying, this is a cloud PC. So what if mm. all the desktop backgrounds are like aerial shots of Earth and like you can actually like see the clouds moving when it's at night, it gets dark. It's so like there are all sorts of little details that weren't really important, but that made it look very compelling. And that's when mm. we started learning now at triple the rate we were learning mm. before launching. Because mm. <laughs> at that point, it turned out uh, we were using just some web hosting company. I don't remember who they kicked us out because we crashed all the servers. We started to we had to figure out. <laughs> how to set up Rackspace uh, servers. Uh, Alan learned very quickly. We got on there, but we very quickly exhausted the free tier. We're like, this thing called AWS that's kind of starting out. So this is now 2012. This thing called AWS that's kind of starting out. Can we, you know, like move on to it and see how that, how big is their free tier? And we're like, yeah, what's going on here? Why is it, why are we exhausting resources so quickly? Oh, people are uploading so many files. Oh, damn. I know we said there was all this free storage, but we didn't think they would use it. And we're like, okay, what types of files? Ah, people are uploading a lot of audio files. What is this? Oh, it's music. Okay, that's interesting. Why are people uploading so much music? It's like, I guess that's the stuff they don't want to lose in case they lose flash drives and MP3 players and stuff mm. like that. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, okay, cool. But why are all these people uploading a Kanye album why can't we just store one copy of that Kanye album and give them access to it? You know, it's like, mm. ah, cool. Mm. We would later come to learning computer science and cloud. That's called deduplication. And you have to build algorithms for that, which we did without knowing that's what it's called. <laughs> but we learned all this mm. core sort of computer science, cloud computing in practice just by mm. realizing that's what you need to do or right. reading forums and seeing how other people are solving those problems. So you were like, actually... That's a big risk. Let's not allow any music to be uploaded. Let's create Groove Let's add Groove Shark on the desktop and have people stream their music, and then it's copyrights are Groove Shark's responsibility. And so right. that happened, and it went on and on and on, and the thing just kept growing and growing. At our peak, we had a user engagement of like twenty-one minutes per day, which was higher than Facebook and Twitter combined at the time. But we didn't know what to do with it. Wow. It wasn't meant to be a business. Wow. We didn't know how to charge for it. It got us into Nylab, which was an interesting mm-hmm. story. Uh, so Larry Mado and I share a birthday, as it turned out. He mm. saw an article about what we were building, this cloud PC thing, mm. congratulated me on Twitter just before our mutual birthday. And I was like, yeah, so yeah, birthday. Oh, it's your birthday as well. Cool. I'm having this uh, little get-together at Power254. Come through. I went through. He and Sam Gishuru were at Daystar together. So Sam was there. He was like, oh, I know you. You're the Kageni Mind on Twitter. Mm. I've heard some of your writing. It's very good. Mm. I ran this place called the Nylab. We just finished our first cohort mm. of startups. I need someone to write some really good pieces for our website on those startups. While you're there, mm. I've seen this cloud thing you're doing. I'm hearing good things. You can check by talking to those startups. Maybe you want to apply to the next batch. So I did. It was right. brilliant. I did. I was like, Nylab is offering everything we are missing. 
office space, high-speed Wi-Fi, coffee, a nice place to meet people. I can work there overnight if I want. It was like perfect. So we applied the whole drama around how we got in because the site crashed on the morning of the presentation. <laughs> it's like all sorts of interesting <laughs> things. But we had enough traction to show that we got in. And that's when now the next phase of life began because cool. You built an amazing product. Now what? How do you turn now it what? into a business? <laughs> you know, you think you're on top of the world in one regard, and then reality hits you in the face. Because now I know saying, listen, we're not here to incubate cool products. It's a question of how do we help you turn this into a business? And that's when I realized viscerally the difference between having a great product and a real business. Because a mm-hmm. good product that no one will pay for cannot be a real business. Doesn't matter. So right. <laughs> it was not a hard lesson. A very hard lesson. So it was like, yeah. okay, how do we turn this into a business? This is 2012. Uh, mm-hmm. No one is like going to pay you to back up their files. The reason no we had a lot of sales <laughs> was because it was free and it was cool. The moment we start telling people we are mm-hmm. charging, we'll just log off and that's that. So it's like, okay, we need to find some kind of use case that makes sense. So like, maybe we sell this mm-hmm. to businesses as a thin client, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The only problem there is we're a bunch of 20-year-old kids walking into a company in 2012 <laughs> telling them, listen, we want to take all your valuable <laughs> data. You will be on our servers somewhere else. No brainer. You, I don't even need to go beyond that mm-hmm. for you to know why it was a non-starter. Right. And so we kept like <laughs> agonizing over how to pivot and create a business model. And I was like, man, we should have started with this part. It was so stupid not to start with this part. Because, yes, mm. amazing product, but we can't sustain it. We don't have savings. We don't have funding. Like, how will mm. these things stay alive? Mm. And that was one of the toughest mm. lessons I had to learn in the end. We tried to pivot to um, we tried to pivot to e-learning, and we thought back then mm-hmm. university students didn't all have laptops or smartphones, but there was especially distance learning. We felt there was something there because you could log into your desk as a teacher mm-hmm. or as a student from any cyber or any computer or in the library, and like do your work, log out. Another student or teacher logs in, and you know, it was completely mm-hmm. universal. But then it was just too little, too late, because by then my co-founder and I had separated. He was having some personal issues, but also we've been like pushing this thing for too long without, you know, any mm. income out of mm. it. And so, mm. uh, yeah, we just ended up splitting. I was like, there's no way either of us can keep this thing running by themselves. And so right. we shelved right. something so promising. I still imagine in an alternative reality where we moved to Silicon Valley at the time, uh, mm-hmm. maybe have been a company like Dropbox or Box or some version of that type mm-hmm. of company because mm-hmm. we had all mm-hmm. the seeds just in the wrong part mm-hmm. of the world. And these companies were also just burgeoning mm-hmm. at the time. That's when the cloud right. application was really happening. So Popping. Yeah. that was the hard lesson. Uh, first, so the hard lesson was start with a business model. Otherwise, what you're doing is not going to survive. And if it's not going to survive, what's the point of spending so much time right. and energy on it? But on the flip side, a switch had flipped from this experience in my brain. Mm. I always thought I'd be a writer and that's all I wanted to do forever. And of course, when you're a writer and you're an ambitious one, you hope to maybe one day write something and be one of the greats, you know? You don't know mm. whether it will mm. be stage or film or television or just classical literature but you hope to be one mm. of the greats in some way and that your work will affect many mm. people and have a dramatic impact for generations to right. come even if we don't admit it to ourselves if you're ambitious that's really what you hope for internet that's what you that's what you're trying to do yeah that's just the reality but then mm. yes this thing we had created just mm-hmm. two kids on a friend's couch that had gone all the way around the world and catapulted us to the front of the personal cloud industry, which was totally new at the time. And we were now sort of, you know, cutting edge domain experts now in that space. And I was like, wait a minute, this is a different kind of impact on many different levels. And it had like Mm -hmm. a way in a way that the written word had never been able to. 
it was the same mm. intensity mm. of excitement mm. but the richness and depth mm. of it was so much right i was like this this window will not be open forever and from what i've seen right. i think i can be really good at this and i have a decent shot of building a generational product or a generational company that really touches the lives of millions of people in like a tangible way every day and it's not based mm. on whether critics thinks it's interesting or whether an editor decides to publish it it's really just proving right. yourself in the market due to the customer yeah exactly yeah, that's awesome. to the marketplace so there were no gatekeepers mm-hmm. and this opened just it was a mind blow Boom. i was like <laughs> okay so where will i have the most impact with my life if i write the next great novel or the next great play or the next great syndicated uh, television show or oscar winning film or if i build a product that touches a million lives in a positive way and i can actually build a business that also you know is a nice way to spend my productive mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. i decided the potential upside and the time in history when i was asking myself this question i had to go with the technology route i had to at least take my right. if i fail i fail but now i decided i'm not going to go back to just being a writer I'm going to try and figure out what the next thing I want to do in technology is. And that's mm. now when it became clear. Now this is my path for most of the rest of my life until I another switch flips. So mm. me and another uh, co-founder of a company that had also failed out of that batch, it didn't work out. They had like a rental mm. marketplace. His co-founder went back to mm. employment. I got an office in exchange for offering some basic IT support uh, from one of the people in my network and uh, we ended up starting the next company uh, called Allen Hack just to try and survive while we figured out what we wanted to do so we said you can build uh, sites you're a developer I can copyright and do some basic graphic design let's just build a few websites to pay the bills while we figure out what we want to do next and that led us mm. to realizing oh wait a minute there's actually people who did more complex systems that we can charge more for like people who run mm. content writing businesses they need you know all these freelance management platforms uh, so we were swinging between projects a hybrid cloud for a corporate uh, uh, companies wanting like content management systems uh, and then at the time developing like a field tracking application for an organization with volunteers uh, all around the country and then we were like okay so this is interesting we're making a bit more money we've been able to move out we you know like we are mm. surviving life is moving but right. it's not the most sustainable we need to find a product that has recurring revenue where right. you make a sale mm. like mm. keeps giving it's, it's not that you're chasing new mm. contracts every other month and so mm. after talking we realized maybe fintech is where it's at because this is mm. when empire was exploding talent branch were coming onto the scene we were realizing how big yeah. this opportunity is because of how fast these guys are going we're like wow access to credit is such a big headache a massive mm. opportunity uh, and i remember i think one of his relatives wanted to start an mfi but they couldn't find the right software to like mm. uh, you know that was mm. right switch mm. but it was too simple and not doing exactly the thing or too big and expensive and complex and we're like hey we could build that you know and sort of that's mm. how we mm. ended up going with with my second company but a really important part is when we found that we didn't forget the lessons from the first business mm. which was mm. before mm. we wrote any code we first got a customer who was committed to paying we knew how much they what problem we were solving we knew how much they would pay we knew uh when they would pay us and and etc so we just just flipped now that that, that script mm, and the model and, uh, yeah yeah that's basically how it worked that's fantastic but yeah that's that's really cool uh you know we have like five more minutes here wilson so we can maybe just kind of walk through um from when you guys started and how you guys raised money what what was that what was that process what did you bootstrap what was what was that process like yeah so that's a good question so uh 
when we got to starting FinPlus with with uh, Banta, um, we took the same general approach that you would expect, which is we um, we we first tried to qualify the business opportunity, as it were. So we first tried to qualify the business opportunity. We made sure there was a customer who was willing to pay so that we could at least pay our bills uh, off the business. And that would give us enough time to think about what to do next. So it wasn't just about building and they will come. We got our first MFI. Premier was the very first MFI that we got. and my network has always really come in handy because from my previous company, which I left uh, in early 2017 now to start FinPlus, there were channel partners that we had connected with and who believed in what we were doing. And so that actually became the source of our very first angel investor. So um, mm. our first angel investor was a guy called Fred, Frederick Fisterer. He's the co-founder of a company called Mambu. Mambu is a German cloud-based core banking system company. Uh, Mm. So it was such a cool concept and it connected perfectly with the market we were serving. And they had built a piece very well that meant we don't have to rebuild that particular wheel, a sort of a a cloud-based core banking engine. So um, he was the first investor. He said, listen, I believe in what you guys are doing. I've worked with you before. I know you can make this work. So he invested the first 10,000 euros into the business. But his mm-hmm. investment only landed after we had actually closed the first customer and mm-hmm. already sent out our first invoice. The f- that solution had gone live, you know. So um, mm-hmm. already we had also proved it also wasn't just talk. So that was a nice sort of vote of confidence. Um, And we basically just kept going because this customer wanted a few more things. And so we started working on those things. But critically, this customer was also part of a larger network of MFIs. And so Mm -hmm. they started taking off like this because of what we were doing in part. The other Mm -hmm. sister companies Mm -hmm. started looking around and being like, oh, Hold on, I I also want that thing. I also want that thing. So it became like your classic mm. sort of land and expand, you know. So mm. it actually mm. became the core of the FinPlus business, grew quite organically. And to the point of, Fantastic. if you're going to do something, do it well. The mm. CEO of our first customer is the one who introduced us to our second and most major investor. His name is Peter. Mm. who later Mm. joined us as a co-founder because he just ended up providing that much value. So that introduction Mm. came from the CEO of our first customer because he saw what we were doing, also believed in it. He, you know, he saw how critical it was and said, okay, you guys maybe need to bring in more money into the business to make sure you're stable. And so Peter managed to inject another maybe 200,000 or so USD in like investment over... A certain period and just get more and more more and more involved in the business and he ended up becoming a co-founder because he was providing value in areas where he was very strong that were important to the company and were not mm. our specialties so mm. that's basically how we got off the ground and since then it's just been listening to what the customers need building that out and then just continuing to grow and grow and grow and grow organically the perhaps mm-hmm. a nice way to uh, a, a, a nice way to sort of cap this is that we asked ourselves whether we wanted to go the VC route or the organic route, and we said, okay, for the first product, let's try and go the organic route, which might not make mm-hmm. sense to a lot of people. It's definitely a much harder route, but we really wanted to see if we could make it work before we started like trying mm-hmm. to raise a ton of money to right. go big. Mm-hmm. And so it took a while, but as bootstrap businesses usually do, but eventually we got there. And 2020 was the most unpredictable year for the business, but that mm-hmm. was the year mm-hmm. that actually broke records. We doubled revenue last year. We became cash flow wow. positive last year. We actually were profitable by the end of last year. Uh, we shipped a brand new product that's going to launch later this year and achieved some very amazing traction at the end, uh, but by the end of last year. So it just goes to show it is possible. 
We did that with very few people on the team, but so much value provided, such massive impact, and uh, yeah, couldn't be happier. So how big is your team right now? What, what, what you know, how, what's the size of your organization? Yeah, so uh, we have only seven full-time staff uh, at the moment. Wow. (laughs) What's the the balance between engineering and other operation stuff? 60-40. So 60% engineering, 40, uh, yeah, um, non-engineering. And uh, actually by now, I think by now it's 50-50, but as of next month, it will be 65 engineering. We're adding, I think, two or three engineers in the coming weeks uh because okay. of of now the new stuff that we're doing but um yeah that just goes to show you the massive leverage of technology and as an automation company I mean, we live okay. what we say when we tell you we will reduce your overhead as as a customer we tell you look at the numbers they speak for themselves and one of the very big numbers so maybe this might be interesting for the listeners um these two ways you can look at what i just said this platform has processed 60 billion shillings. We have only seven people on staff. When you're pitching a customer, right, you could say we're only seven people and they would be like, that's too tiny, man. I can't give my business to you guys. And to some extent, they would be right, but it's because they're thinking in the wrong way. You know, just ask, let's right. follow the logic of that statement. Are you trying to give your technology platform to a company that needs so many people to run it and you are expecting those uh, that company to reduce your overhead what's the logic so uh, for us I, I always wondered is that strategy going to backfire and will we not be able we will lose credibility from customers but then I very quickly realized no just let the numbers speak for themselves and say okay cool this is the transaction value we've processed, this is the impact, this is the number of countries. These are all customers who you can talk to, solid references. We've done all this with seven people. Imagine what we can do for your business with your 200 staff. Right. Yeah. And, and Fantastic. That's, like, that's really good. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. That's, that's a great story. Look, I mean, there's so much more I would like to dive in. I think what we need to do is probably do another, uh, another session at some point and kind of dive into kind of, yeah. your product roadmap, right? Um, and then how you expanded from Kenya into these other markets. Because that's also another very interesting dynamic, right? Yeah. That people need to start thinking about, right? You just yeah. can't think Kenya. Kenya is a tiny market. Yeah. How do you scale into these, these other markets? And how did you choose your market? Or did they choose you? Would love to pick into, to dive into those in, in, a, in another session. So um, for now, we are now in 11 minutes into this. Um, that was a so long one. <laughs> I talk a lot. Yeah? That's a long one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I talk a lot as well, but I, I know how it is.